Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Parks and Recollection. I'm your uh, trusted host, Rob Lowe, along with probably your even more trusted host, Alan Yang. What's up, Rolo? How are you? How are you? I think you're more trusted than me because at the end of the day, I'm an actor. Actors are lie for a living, or so people say. See, I say they tell the truth for a living. They're running the numbers. Uh, they think you're a liar. Yeah, no, my girlfriend says the same thing. She's an actor, and she's like... I'm an actor, and I know I can tell when you're lying because you're not an actor. I was like, well, what does that say about you? <laughs> what does that mean about you? Because does that mean that you can lie and I won't be able to tell? What do you think, Rob? Well, here's what makes me crazy is people go, how do I know if you're telling the truth? You're an actor. And I go, no, 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 no. Only bad actors lie. Good actors tell the truth. Like, we get dialogue sent to us on a piece of paper. It doesn't mean shit. It's something on a piece of paper. And our entire job is to find the truth in it. My job is to give you a piece of shit that you have to then turn into the truth. <laughs> so good luck, buddy. <laughs> That's right. I've done both. And we're going to, and, and in this episode, uh, there's so much to unpack. I loved this episode. I particular. I love, first of all, I love me a good Christmas episode. Yeah, that's what was, it was one of the, you know, one of the things I noticed while watching it. Like, that's one of the special things about these kind of network sitcoms is like you get to do these holiday episodes and they're really special. They're really fun. I'm a sucker for them. I'm a sucker for them. On, on the West Wing, it was a big deal if your character was featured heavily in the Christmas episodes. The Christmas episodes in the West Wing were always the best and almost invariably won Emmys. So... I just have a special place in my heart for it. This episode we're doing is called Christmas Scandal. Ooh. And uh, it's episode 12 of season two. It's written by, well, this is probably why it's so damn good. Everybody's Boss, Mike Sure, and directed by Randall Einhorn. Yeah, it aired December 10th, 2009. So good thing it was in December. That would make no sense if it aired in July. So December 10th, Although, 2009. although you know, you know Christmas in July is a thing now. You know that, I've right? heard, I've heard. That's the exact... Uh, so what's the, what's the origin of Christmas in July? What's your familiarity with that? I can tell you exactly what it is. It's the success of Christmas movies, which I have done my fair share of, and they always crush. I mean, in fact, on the West Wing... I went one hiatus and did a movie called The Christmas Shoes. And listen, I love Aaron Sorkin. He's one of my favorite people in the world, and he's really talented. But let's face it, he's one of the biggest snobs who ever lived. <laughs> and he and I remember him giving me unrelenting shit that I was going away to do The Christmas Shoes. And um, when it came out, it broke all ratings records for like <laughs> five years. Not that Aaron ever eats crow because he just does not. He doesn't consume crow, but uh, it was pr pretty close to that. What was the premise of the Christmas shoes? Were the shoes a gift? Were they, were they Santa shoes? What was the premise of the Christmas shoes? The shoes were the shoes that the little boy saves his allowance up to go buy to give to his mommy 
because she is dying and going to meet Jesus. Oh my God. <laughs> now, for those of you who can't see the feed, I know I just laughed, but I am crying. I am, I am crying on the Zoom right now because that is beautiful, Rob. That and beautiful. by the way, you will cry like a baby at this movie. Well, and what, it's one of those things, it's total tangent here, but it's one of those things that was one of those, um, remember in the early days of the internet, even pre sort of Facebook, people would share like apocryphal poems or stories that you didn't, really know were true or not true or remember that and they'd be a thing and so this would this went around as one of those stories called the christmas shoes and it's very tear-jerking and heartwarming and then it became a book somebody wrote a book based on this thing and then it became a hit country and western song <laughs> so at every iteration this little story became a little phenomenon and um finally it was a it was a movie. But for you, Rob, what you did as an actor is you took that internet falsehood and turned it into truth. That's what you did. That's what you did in the Christmas shoes. Because so. <laughs> I don't lie. Shall we get into the synopsis of Christmas Scandal? Synopsis up this thing. All right. This is it for all of my synopsis sisters and synop brothers here. The Parks Department performs the annual Pawnee City Government Follies. This is the cold open. That riffs local politics, including one sketch that skewers Councilman Bill Dexhart. Leslie's asked to meet Dexhart at a restaurant where she learns the sketch was accidentally accurate while also unknowingly being photographed by the Pawnee Sun. The speculation about Dexhart and Leslie quickly spins out of control. Ron decides to give Leslie the day off to lie low and distributes her daily duties among the rest of the staff. Leslie has lunch with Dave, who reveals that his unit in the U.S. Army Reserve has been called up to active duty in San Diego and invites Leslie to make the move with him. Ultimately, Leslie will not be joining Dave in his move. Throughout the madness, April asks Andy what to get her gay boyfriend Christmas. All of Andy's ideas are well-meaning but dumb. To thank Andy, she gets him a Reggie Wayne jersey for Christmas. In the A story, Anne brings Dexhart to her home where Anne and Leslie demand he clear Leslie's name. Dexhart refuses because the fake scandal is so docile compared to his real transgressions. Soon after, Anne is horrified to discover that a news crew secretly followed Dexhart to her home and took a photograph of that meeting, resulting in Anne being added to the tabloid speculation. Leslie schedules an appearance on Pawnee Today to clear her name. Host Joan Calamezzo surprises Leslie by bringing out Dexhart, who tries to prove their affair by claiming Leslie has a mole on her buttocks. It says buttocks in the synopsis, so I'm reading buttocks there. To finally end the scandal... Leslie pulls down her pants on live television and shows Calamezzo that she has no mole. Leslie returns to work the next day, much to Ron's immense relief, as he could barely handle just a portion of her daily duties. A lot going on in this episode, I Rob. Mean, Longer synopsis than usual. <laughs> it is truly, by the time they get to the, the halfway mark, I, I, you just can't believe how much has gone on in this episode. I think she they get she gets photographed with Dexhart twice. It's just like she she gets photographed with him and then then again with Anne. It's like are they lesbians? It's like it keeps on it's as Pert Happily says, a story that just won't stop developing. It just keeps <laughs> developing. The story of this story is that it won't stop developing, I think is the the Pert Happily quote. We're learning how to write Pert in this episode, I think. Oh, this is definitely you got this is the first time Pert is in full Pert mode. Yeah. Um also I thought this is one of the happiest teasers. Maybe it's because I'm a sucker. Like I said, I really am a sucker for Christmas. Yeah. I'm like a big sap, and I love Christmas carols. I love, love, love all of it. I love Christmas decorations, and and seeing the filled-in pit now as a vacant lot now turned into a Christmas extravaganza was really sweet and really cool. Yeah, I thought that was a really smart use of the lot, right? Because it's like, okay, well, we're not just going to discard this idea of the pit that turned into a lot. We, and then we talked about the lot, right? So so then we turned it into these various things over the course of future episodes. Um, having it be this sort of holiday thing was really festive. And it was like almost, again, symbolic of the transformation of the show from this hole in the ground to, you know, this is uh, something that people can use to celebrate. And Producer Greg points out, we were renting the lot anyway, so we used it. <laughs> so we already owned it. Save some money. Yeah, we had the property, which is a good point. Um, another yep. thing I noticed in, in the in the Follies, you know, again, obviously, you know, Amy Poehler comes from sketch comedy, and Mike Shore worked on SNL, so, you know, there's a little bit of sketch involved, you know, wearing wigs, all that stuff. I don't know if you noticed this, 
Retta, who plays Donna, very prominently chewing gum yes, throughout the entire... Very prominent. Like, I could not... Drew my eye as if it was, like, the center of... I could not stop... I was like, did someone... know? Like, should someone have told her not to do that? I don't know. By the way, that's... Drew my eye. That's, that's the kind of shit Brad Whitford would do behind all my close-ups in the West Wing. <laughs> Just see if I can get... Hey, man, you gotta do something. Get out of that Rob Gleam. <laughs> Brad's gotta do something. Yeah, man, something's gotta do something. Yeah, and... And the other thing, of course, is Ron Swanson is not singing. Yes, that very, very in character. And you realize also how, how valuable Jerry and Donna was, because over the course of the show, you know, we realized a lot of the characters didn't work in the Parks Department, right? So you have Mark and Anne and Andy, and they're not in the Parks Department. So that's why, can you imagine if, without Jerry and Donna, it's like three or four people up there, which it's, it's, it's not a full office, so we utilize those characters. I realized that watching, it was like, a, we utilize those characters because it fills out the office, and then you give them personalities, and you love them as well, and it just kind of makes the world seem a little more real and filled out. They talk about they're going to be do, eventually, later in the episode, going to be doing a Christmas tree lighting ceremony that's going to be on internet radio. <laughs> this, that was something I was going to point out later, that, that the entire episode is very media heavy, and they're talking about the 24-hour news cycle, cable news, all this stuff. Obviously, it was kind of a metaphor for cable. And, and if this episode were, you know, were airing today, it would just all be about social media. Because it's, yes. it's, that was already, 24-hour news cycle, sure, but but it would all be more instantaneous. It would be immediate. And like, I always kind of hate that in modern day shows, like things going viral, but it is how things happen now. Like that is real now. It used to feel so fake, but now like it would be totally different. It wouldn't be a cable access news show, right? You know, it's the kind of stuff that we think about all the time as, as writers and producers. And, but I, I think probably the average fan uh, or audience member doesn't r- realize that the fact that we all have smartphones takes away so many things writers have used from millennia yeah to make conflict and props it ruins everything <laughs> it's a nightmare I mean, I mean can you imagine all the president's men today we have to like find the person and yeah. or three days three days of the condor that that great thriller robert would now be three minutes of the condor yeah in any rom-com. Okay, and then he just texts her, end of the movie. <laughs> well, this is a misunderstanding. It's like, well, call him on his cell phone. You can use it literally anywhere. So it's just, there's no, it's, it, you, you have to work harder to contrive these stories. And now I love in, in modern day horror movies, you always have to have the shot of someone establishing, I don't have any service. Like, someone just has to say, <laughs> I, I, like, you have to say that. Because, like, I don't have service. Because, like, you could just call somebody. Just call for help. Call anybody. Call your mom or dad. Like, you're, that's, you can reach anybody literally at any time so that has to be accounted for anyway by the way and that ladies and gentlemen is why movies are so bad today thank you <laughs> the only reason that's the only reason <laughs> the only reason that's 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 our excuse uh, and we're sticking to it god um dex Hart, let's let's give props to dex Hart. i mean that's a great character it's a funny character well performed too well performed well written so unrelentingly gross and just unapologetically gross. Makes me laugh. Yeah, and I have no plans to resign, right? I have no plans to resign, like, all that stuff. Oh, like, I know we're jumping to the ending here, but, if, but, but while we're on the topic of Dex Hart, I was thinking, what's, what's wild is this, this ending where she pulls down her pants and, and Dex Hart is proven wrong. I was, again, thinking, if this were done today, in modern day, he would still... So, it, basically, in the episode, Dex Hart says, okay, you got me, I made it up. But... I honestly think if this happened today in real life or in a comedy, he would say, you know what? I still, it's the other cheek. Or no, it's not, you know what? He would just keep lying. He would just double down. There's no yes. admitting any, there's no admitting anyone's wrong. Certainly not a politician. When's the last time a politician said, you know what? I was wrong. I was like, man, a scumbag like Dexart would definitely in 2021 say, well, she must have gotten it removed or whatever. She must have gotten the mole removed. Like, I, I, I don't lie. I'm right. Frankly, that's what I was expecting. Yeah. I like, that was the natural story move. I just, it just rang like, not false for then, but false for now. I was like, man, a politician now would just double down for sure. Oh, I, that he immediately folded his tent and went home. I was shocked. I thought he'd be like, did you check to see if she hadn't applied makeup over the <laughs> yes, mall or whatever? Exactly. It, it was a more innocent time, a, a decade ago. Um, I, I always like to talk about the lines that made me laugh out loud in an episode. And I love Tom Haverford's line when he's talking about diamonds, where he's like, 
Everybody loves diamonds. Even those like super left wing chicks who love Blood Diamond. <laughs> we had a lot. Of, I feel like we talked about the movie Blood Diamond in the writer's room in an inordinate amount of time. A movie that did not make a blip on the cultural radar other than Leonardo DiCaprio doing a South African accent. One of the weirdest movies of all time. But we talked about Blood Diamond all the time. I think, and then Craig Lemmy points out the movie The Contender, which is a Joan Allen movie, I believe. But but yeah, Blood Diamond, I, I think at some point, this is nothing, but there was a card. So, you know, in the writer's room, we write down ideas on cards, right? Three by five index cards, and they're just scattered about the room. If you would walk in, Rob, you probably remember this, you walk yeah. into the room, there's hundreds of multicolored three by five index cards. And some of them are episode ideas, some of them are beats in a story, some of them are lines, some of them are characters, whatever. We had a card that said Blood Diamond Phillips, like a, a play on Lou Diamond <laughs> Phillips, which is nothing. It's an, it's a pure nothing. I think it got written on a, and it stayed in the writers' room for five years. I'm not like it just was. It just was there. I was like, what are we looking at here? Why is that on? That's, it was either on the wall or on a table, or and it just never. And I just laughed, maybe laughed like in between seasons. It got cleaned up and then distributed again. Like just a card that said Blood Diamond Phillips. Like what does that mean? But we. Weirdly, we're obsessed with the movie Blood Diamond. I don't even know what happens in that movie, but but yeah, that somehow bled its way into the script. Bled its way into the script. Pun not intended. This is why there's nothing better than being in a comedy writer's room. <laughs> because y- these weird little flights of fans, and we had it on the grinder, they were obsessed with Hobbes and Shaw. Yeah. And, and everything was about Hobbes and Shaw. And the theory about Hobbes and Shaw, by the way, was they felt like the first 20 minutes was the perfect action, the most perfect action movie ever, ever made, and the rest of it, the worst movie ever made. But like, <laughs> what, do you remember what the obsession was on The Contender? I'm very, very curious about yes, this. Yes, The Contender, so for the uninitiated, and again, not to spoil The Contender, a 30-year-old movie at this point, but I believe what happens in The Contender is she's accused of something. I think it's like a, like a sex tape or something like that, or some kind of sex scandal. And I believe the plot is she refuses to dignify it with a response. So she, she in the movie, she says, basically, she's so morally pure and upright. She's like, I don't, I will not get down in the mud with you. And I will not even deign to hold a press yeah. conference to deny that this happens because that is not the tenor of my campaign. That is, or, you know, I think she was vice president or something. I don't remember. This is a great, great summary of the contender. The writer of the contender is listening to this and be like, no, you're, you're butchering yeah, it. You're butchering but it. Ultimately, it's something like that where she refuses to deny an allegation against her. And so initially it came up as a story idea for Leslie. And, and, and honestly, it's kind of interesting because it's tied into this episode a little bit. But the idea that sh- that there's some, we always would just say, yeah, okay, then the, the contender type things happen, like where she doesn't, she doesn't, she won't dignify it with a response. But that became a shorthand. The number of times someone said, and then we do a contender type thing. It's like it's it never ended up even happening the show. But but using that very obscure movie as a shorthand is so funny to me because it's like it becomes it becomes a, a, another language. Like I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase like. In a relationship, what you know, in a romantic relationship, you develop this language, and, and and that's one of the things that if you break up or separate, you that language dies. There's something like beautiful about that. But a writer's room definitely has its own language. That that there's these weird shorthands and inside jokes and and things that spiral out of nothing. That everyone weirdly, like these twelve people, won't never forget. Quite frankly, and and that is every like ask any writer from season two or three about the contender they all remember what it is which is very weird but yeah more people remember the parks and rec writers room jokes about the contender than the actual movie that's what they're saying they said they just on imdb the the contender bit just surpassed the contender the star (laughs) meter for the contender bit just got put up there Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors, no prep, no mess meals. Now, Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved, which is awesome. And they're ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So, so good. I love this stuff. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore to help you crush your wellness goals. And let me tell you what I crush. They have a smoky bacon and cheddar egg bite that is mm, 
mm, good. Mm. I tried their shakes also, and they were so good. Oh, I'm a Factor fan. Head to factormeals.com slash parksandrex50 and use code parksandrex50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code parksandrex50 at factormeals.com slash parksandrex50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Another thing I noticed, Robin, and you could talk about this too, is is it opens and it's supposed to be Christmas in Indiana, and they're standing in a lot in San Fernando Valley wearing these heavy winter coats, and you just know it's a hundred degrees. Like you know, oh. it's like look at the actor. You, it's so bright, it's so sunny. You're like, oh my god, you know it's a hundred degrees. I, I don't know if you've ever shot out of season oh. like that. I don't know if you have any stories about that. I shot a a Christmas, another Christmas movie, Christmas Pants. <laughs> this was Christmas Pants was this was the sequel. Um, there, by the way, there was a sequel to the Christmas Shoes, and it starred Blake Shelton and Neil Patrick Harris. Oh wow, okay, yeah. But they would only make it if I appeared in it. So okay. I did three scenes in it in old age makeup. Yes, cash those checks, Rob. <laughs> hey, but, you know, got to get my bag. Hey, man, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but this is another Christmas movie. Yeah. The Christmas Blessing. What's there it is. That's what it's called. <laughs> I'm in old age makeup. Never seen it. Don't know if it's any good. <laughs> Never seen it. <laughs> Never seen it. Very scared about um, the uh, old age makeup. Yeah. But uh, I shot a Christmas movie in August in New Orleans. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was not fun. They should have called it August in New Orleans just to explain what you're seeing on screen. People, people sweating. Does, does Santa Claus die of heat heat stroke in it? Because it's like, oh man, that, that's like. I also did a, a Christmas scene that was meant to be snow, shoppers, carolers of New York City in South Africa. <laughs> was it Cape Town or what? Where were they presenting? Was it, it New was York? In, it Cape was in Town? Cape Town. One, by the way, one of the most beautiful places in the planet. Right? I, I, hey, I love Cape Town. Now we have some Cape Town connection. But yeah, Table Mountain and, and man, oh. it's the weather. It, it's really, be- actually, like, sh- shooting there is interesting because we, we were driving to some vineyards. And this is the most bougie mm-hmm. thing in the world. We were driving some, to some vineyards from Cape Town, but we passed, <laughs> like, a big stage. Like, a, they said they were shooting stuff there. It's like, wow, you can do it for cheaper there, right? Is that the idea? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um I, I, I don't sully myself with such things. I only went to, to Africa to shoot because it took place in Africa. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Except for this thing that was New York in Africa. Except for that one part. Uh, but yeah, no, the actors, that's one of the things. Um, it's funny, I'm going to it, Hotlanta, as they call it, um, in, a, in two weeks to shoot. And it's going to be hot. And I, I've already called up and said, I need a, an air conditioning tent anytime I'm outside, like a phone booth, old school phone booth where I just go stand in it like a tent and they, they like they open the door and out I come and I, because you can't shoot with wardrobe 12 hours outside in that kind of weather. You just can't. And the Valley we did it when I came on to parks, I'll never forget. We do a, there's a thing where it's a barbecue and Nick's character has a, it attached to his truck. And then he run he drives out and the truck spins out. This is coming in an episode. We'll d- discuss as we get closer to it, but I will never forget how hot it was, and how we almost died. We literally almost died. And and it really affects your performance. You know, it, it like I, I, I sympathize in the sense that, you know, being on set, granted, there's a lot of other people working on set, but the actors have to be in their wardrobe, right? So they, they like they, they, they can you can get a warming coat. Like if it's freezing cold and you're, you know, there's scenes where people are, you know, not wearing the proper clothing, they have to just shoot the take and then someone runs in and gives them a warming coat. But you know, like if you're in a winter coat and it's a hundred degrees outside, like I don't, I don't care who you are. Like you're not going to act that well. How about <laughs> like, this? That's really hard. I, I remember in those scenes being 
like I had jeans on and one of Chris's little boy striped shirts, but, but Offerman would be in a wool sweater. <laughs> oh my God. Oh yeah. That, uh, hey man, the struggles, the struggles of being an actor, but no, that, that's real. That's real. So get that cooling. The struggle's Atlanta, real. Man. Dude, dude, the Ad- struggle's real. I'm not going to lie. Atlanta, Atlanta, it's not going to be pleasant, but good luck. <laughs> this, is this uh, another Christmas movie? Is this a Christmas this hat? Is, <laughs> no, this is a, this is an Easter movie. Oh, I like that. I like that. It's another no, holiday. No, it's not this Easter. Is good. I got um, a lot. <laughs> um, you know what else I noticed about this, um, episode aubrey plaza's credit shot is in yes this episode she's wearing that multicolored sweater she's talking to andy at the shoeshine stand then what happens she walks away and looks at the camera and that's her credit for m- multiple years so i made a note in my notes while watching the episode aubrey plaza does a great job with her facial acting in this episode she mm-hmm. sells she, she it's it's in a, in a very slight story that doesn't take up a ton of screen time, you're like, oh, she's in love with him. And it's because she looks to camera four times and smiles. And it's like, oh, it's like the power of somebody acting slightly out of character, right? It's like seeing mm-hmm. a cat smile, right? It's like this yep. is, this is it's so, yep. so winning. And you're like, oh, my God, I've seen this character for 20 episodes and 15 episodes, whatever. And this is the only person who brings her joy. So you're like, oh, she's in love with him. And that's kind of cool. She did a great job. I thought she like was very charming. And I was very excited to see the famous uh, Reggie Wayne jersey. That jersey stayed around for a long time. He gets married in it eventually remember, to her. Yes, remember that jersey because seasons later, she, you know, he gets married. And I have some great photos from that from that episode where Mouse Rat plays and there's photos of us with Pratt in that jersey because he's getting married to, to Aubrey. But yeah, it's, it was cool to see it set up and then you remember that stuff for future episodes. It's all building a universe. It's all building a universe. But... But yeah, they're very cute together, and they bring out the best of each other in the show, I think. It was, a, it was a fortunate pairing. There's a restaurant that Leslie and Dave, they go to. It's, it's a very quick scene, but they're having lunch in this restaurant that literally looks like Kate Mantellini's. And that's a dated Los Angeles reference. It looks like they're in a big city for sure. But it's like, I was like, wait, what the hell happened here? It's, I mean, what? Did you notice that? It was extremely I, jarring. I almost wrote down, I, it, it was too quick. I didn't want to go back, but it, it, the restaurant had a name on the side. But I was like, it looks yes. like they're in Brooklyn or something. It looks like they're, yes! they're it looks like we're suddenly in Sex in the City. Yes, you're like, wait, what? why is this exterior? I mean, this was, I mean, Morgan Sackett must have been asleep this week because this thing doesn't look anything like the Parks and Recreation universe. It's hard. It's I, I guess I think you have to try to find a restaurant whose exterior does not look like it's in a major metropolitan city. But they might as well have sh- they might as well have panned down from the Empire State Building at that point. It was like <laughs> this is this seems like so much like it's in a big city. But it, it's also it was that so it was that. And then again, I I don't want to mock the writing of the show because it's I worked on it. It's it's a great show in my opinion. But it also was kind of funny to me going from that exterior and then going in and it's officer dave just being like i'm going to army reserve duty i was like that is pretty i don't know that made me laugh because it's like there's guest arcs and he's not going to be on the show for a hundred episodes so you got to figure out some way to some elegant way to get him gone but i do remember discussing that and we, we thought we'd cover it by saying like he's not going off to war or anything he's going to san diego it's a desk job whatever but it did make me laugh a little bit i was like yeah he's going to, oh he's going to army reserve duty okay well, see, my, that's that's not my issue with the writing my issue with the writing is the false stakes oh that she would move it, uh, leslie's gonna now go i'm leaving pawnee to go to to go to san diego I'm surprised that survived because that's some bad false stakes. Yeah, I think th- so. So one of the sometimes in the writers' room that's called schmuck bait, right? It's like it's it's you're using a threat that no thinking audience member, unless he or she is a child, would, would believe that the character right. would actually leave the show and and abandon the entire setting of the television show. But yes, you're right that that's something we talked about, and there was pros and cons, and and you know I also kind of thought. Again, this was just me kind of wish casting the show, but I kind of thought that the Parks and Rec characters would win her over and then she'd say no to Dave. But she actually says no to Dave first and then goes back. It all it all worked out, but but you know, the show's good. I come come on guys, the show's good, but those are, those good. are our, I, those are our quibbles with the show. But yeah. Listen, we can't we can't just be shills every time we show up. Uh, we're not show. I don't think we are. We just shat on one of the locations for like two minutes. So yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I also love uh, Louis C.K.'s iteration of playing a stupid person. I mean, because Dave is so earnestly, he's not, it's not that he's dumb, but it's really interesting. It's like he's just earnestly simple and super uncomplicated. It's like cop talk. Right. So at some point he says, uh, that, uh, do I love Leslie? Uh, that, that's an affirmative. You know, it's like overly yeah, yeah. official trying to yeah, mask yeah. your lack of intelligence by using words that make it sound more official. That's essentially what that character is. And honestly, it's pretty fun to write. Yeah. I just wanted to point out quickly a little run that Andy has, uh, his story of the gossip at the shoeshine stand about what oh. he heard. It's a very long run. And to me, it was a great example of the, the writers learning how to write for Andy because it's, it's like he would later do even longer, crazier runs. Like I think there's one in your bachelor party episode, I think where, where, where he's, oh, he goes on a crazy insane. story. Yeah. Episode two parties. What, what, it's, that he what, wants me, if something were to happen to him. Yes. He, he wants you to marry April, but then secretly he's, a, he's not dead. He's alive in a cave training to come, kill, come back and kill you or oh, something. But dude. it's one of the funniest things that has ever been in the show. And this one is, I feel like is a, is a, like a tiny embryo fetus version of that, where it's like, Oh, if we just have him talk for that long and something he made up, like it is really funny. So I, I, that's what that reminded me of. I mean, you really do get to see what a what just a comedy killer Pratt is. Yes, and he is just a fucking beast. He's and so, so natural, funny, and so natural. It doesn't feel pushed, right? It's like no. There's, there's so many times. It, there's a there's a magic and there's a special charisma in being able to deliver jokes and have them be funny, but not have them be hammy or sweaty or on the nose or just not in any sort of reality. He always delivers stuff natural but it's still funny that's really hard and that and and that's you know he's and he's still an, an actor right he's not also just someone who's coming in being funny he obviously obviously can act as well so kudos so, to brad good luck to that young man i hope he does well there, there's also another thing i want to point out there's a character named alexa softcastle who is a reporter uh not very interesting fact but there one of the directors on parks is named alex hardcastle so we very lazily <laughs> named this character alexa softcastle this is just not not no imagination there just really just truly a lazy move but she says her full name which is not really necessary but she comes in and is like alexa softcastle here like what do you have to think about like what do you think about that? It's like i just made me laugh thinking back to why we did that but yeah would, i don't think alex hardcastle probably ever saw this episode either but we'll see I don't know. Here's what here's what's funny about that is like it makes you guys laugh. You know the yeah. genesis of it. Yeah. I have no idea the genesis of it, and I laughed out loud when she said her name. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I laughed it out loud. A funny name because it's just a f soft castle. It's just funny. <laughs> it, it is funny. The, the not the first or last of many silly names on the show. And, and and by the way, one of many reporters in the history of this show. Like the the press is in so. I would be curious how many episodes the press appears in in Parks and Rec. Out of the 125 episodes. I would guess it's at least 20, maybe more, because it's it's just a huge... And you know what? why we used it sometimes is it's, it's, a, it's a stakes raiser, basically. When, yeah. there's a, when there's a spotlight on you, one of the tricky things, I think, about writing stories for a, a, a relatively grounded, small, office-based comedy is what are the stakes? What's really important? Obviously, what's important is the character's emotional states and their motivations and what they care about and who they're in love with and who they want to be friends with, etc. But ultimately, you need some plot stakes as well. And, and the, we, we'd always, we didn't want to overuse it, but it always increases the stakes. It's like, oh, the press is there. A reporter's there. They're doing a story on it. Because yep. if you think about it in, that in your real life, like, yeah, if a reporter came and did a negative story on you and you're just a regular person, like, that would actually be really important in your life. So we did turn to that. We went to the well of the media, you know, often in the show. And it was fun. You know, it was fun. I like the way Pawnee has basically their own version of the New York Post they, they've got the post. They've got like trash cable news. They've got Perd Happily, the local reporter. They've got a talk. I mean, it's it's a, a robust local media landscape in Pawnee. Surprisingly so. Yeah. The the uh, uh, what do they call Legacy Media? Strong. Alive and well. Yeah. The yeah. We got radio hosts. We got a, yeah. There's a whole ecosystem there. It's 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 a lot going on. But yeah, that was funny when when Donna was reading the the Pawnee Sun. The Pawnee Sun is basically New York Post. So. When uh, Leslie is in her talking head, going, the local media here just always 
blows things out of proportion and just reports on it and reports on it. And they won't start reporting. They once had somebody from Pawnee go to the Olympics. Then they did it for literally a year. And this prince was just going to the Olympics to watch. Yeah, it wasn't even competing. It was just a guy. It was just a boy who went to the Olympics. <laughs> yes. And shout out to Mo Collins, who plays Joan Calamezzo. I mean, we would use her again and again. So I think it's someone who just... Uh, plays kind of a drunk, insane person, but yeah, just but, roiling it up and stirring. But she's the waters not drunk yet. She, she's she not drunk yet in this one. She's not as yes. drunk or lascivious in this one. But yeah, she's just shit stirring. She's stirring the pot, right? Which when is, did you decide to make her an alcoholic? Uh, <laughs> I feel like maybe season three. I think that's when things get a little crazier. But then it was very much, very much so involved in in most of her appearances. And I think she enjoyed playing that. She just got war, war, crazier and crazier stuff. And yeah, she that was a you know a little unlocking of that character i think maybe so the other thing i wanted to ask, i wanted to ask uh producer greg this so do you remember so dex Hart sees leslie and ann he, he's they're leaving and then he's like well sh-, then he basically asked them should we like should we have sex like should yes. we just do this anyway am i wrong or was this some kind of writer's room bit was it before the sh- was it before we wrote it into the show or was it after or do you not remember this greg do you, I, i'm dying i don't remember like what was it i can't remember if it was before or after but it did become a run in the room of a should we did we will we right that we would just keep doing this and it would come up different points but um i don't think it came if I remember correctly, I don't think it came before this. It was because of this moment. Maybe, be- maybe because of this. I mean, and now that seems like a clear some sort of sexual harassment violation, but it yeah. was never meant in that in that way. But it was. Yeah. I think it was. It was literally like you know, Norm would be in the kitchen making a bagel, and so when like like Harris would go in to pour some cereal, and it would literally be like, "Should we?" Like any like the totally <laughs> devoid of content. Like it would it would always be in the least sexual situation possible. It was never people who were actually attracted to each other or any sort of. It was just like, it was four people in a room. And then if conversation petered out, someone would just say, should we? <laughs> like, or did we, or will we? <laughs> like that. So, but that persisted for years too, which is inappropriate, but also pretty funny. Here's the takeaway from this episode, people. Try this in your lives. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely try to get that in your workplace. Probably going to get fired, but you could do it there. Your family, if you want to do it there. But yeah, should we? Just at the end of any conversation, really inappropriate. Should we? <laughs> should we? It's so clear what he means, too. All he says is, should we? But it's very clear what he's so gross. It's so gross what he's doing. Again, get shout out to the performer doing something he, very creepy. He, very okay, creepy. so, I, I, you know, you know, I love reading Dex Hart. Because he does something in the performance, as crazy as this is about to, as I'm about to read, he does a little tiny thing in the performance that made me laugh even more so. And he leans over to the table to Leslie and goes, stop playing dumb. You know damn well what happened. I got the babysitter pregnant. And then when she was in the delivery room, I had sex with not one, but four nurses in the supply closet, as well as a woman whose husband was getting liver transplant. Mm. Now... Which one of them told you? It was the hmm made yes. me laugh so hard. And then I, I think he also ends with which one of them told you? Was it the liver lady? <laughs> like was it the <laughs> was, was it the liver lady the is really lady. truly <laughs> the liver lady. <laughs> yeah. I was like, all right, we went there, man. We went there. It's like this <laughs> this dude. He's like, mm-hmm. But yeah, a, a solid performance, play, basically playing almost, doing almost like a Nixon voice or something. That's a very, very yes. strange, bassy voice from that guy. But yeah, it worked. He is doing a Nixon. We and we see there's some public forum action in this one. Oh, I, I noticed. Yes. That, yeah, I noticed the, the guy mentioned swine flu and turtle flu, and I got COVID flash, not even flashbacks because it's still happening. But flash yeah, forwards. Yeah, COVID flash forwards. Very awful to hear. I was like, oh no, swine flu. It was not a joke, guys. It's not a joke. I loved it. And you know, I, I loved everything about the town hall. It feels more in the rhythm of what the show used, you know, used it as. And, and, and Greg, Lo- Greg Levine notes, it's the first one without Leslie. So, you know, it's Ron trying to handle it, which is, you know, which is interesting. Yeah, it um, felt like the first one where it's literally just rapid fire comedy gags. Yes. Like it, wasn't, yes. it wasn't like there was no plot being serviced. It was just everybody who stood up was more insane than the next person, which is what they became 
And we ended up using some of those townspeople in future episodes. I remember the first lady and you know, she, the sandwich, the lady who's obsessed with sandwiches, I think, comes back multiple times. Because, you know, you can't let that lady go after one line. You got to keep having her come back and talk about sandwiches, which uh, is funny. Again, which is all the actors out there, it just goes to show you, you can crush with one line. No, in all seriousness, it's really, really true. If you come in and throw down, people will remember. They really, really will. They will. Because, it, it, yeah, it, if you stand out, there is. A couple other things I want to note. Quickly, seeing Leslie's mom was hilarious because it's like she, cause she used to be such an evil character. And then at the end, when she's like, all right, there you go. And she just hugs her and then it's over. It's like, all right. Um, and then in the vein of gifts, parties, and jobs, it's a little bit of a cheat because it's Christmas episode, but there are three gifts at the end of this episode. So in the tradition of, of Parks and Rec, there's, there's three gifts. And... It's kind of the end of those stories, you know. They they kind of we kind of use them as as wrapping them up. I know you are you because you're a very deferential, wonderful man. Are always at pains to spread the credit around in the writers' room, and even though someone's name may be on the script, the truth of it is, it really is collaborative, and that is true. However, I, I'm just from an outsider. Th- this ending is vintage, Mike Sure. It basically ends on Leslie in her office as saying Leslie No Parks Department and you just kinda get a good feeling that she's where she belongs and she's at her job where she's very valued and loved by the people she works with. It's almost West Wingian. Yep. It's and West Wing, it's Frank Capra, it's that kind of thing, right? Yeah. It it is. It's it's unabashed sentiment. And maybe sentiment isn't the right thing, but there's like not being afraid to to go for an emotional jugular, albeit in a really subtle way. Yeah, I, I don't mind that too. And you know, it just reminds me of I think early on when I was writing on some show or something, they 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 mentioned something called a treacle cutter, where it's like, yep. yeah, and then you put a treacle cutter in and you just put a joke in at the end, so it's not like treacly. I'm like, well, late as I as I got older as a writer, I was like, well, if you're doing it right, the emotions in your show shouldn't be treacle. They should be valuable, and your characters should be human beings you believe in and you care about. And I'm not saying every scene should be emotional and sentimental, and but ultimately, I don't think you should need treacle cutters unless you know you're doing it wrong in some ways. But you know, every show has every show has its own tone. Um, but yeah, that certainly there's no treacle cutter at the end of that episode. It's just it's just emotional, which is fine. And a treacle is what exactly? A treacle, I think, is something that is. It's a overly sweet and syrupy substance, um, and in the case of an emotional scene, it's usually one that's unearned emotion or something that feels sort of hacky or sentimental when it shouldn't be. So, treacle cutter. It's kind of like pudding. Would you like it's some a, pudding before? It's a bit like pudding. It's a thick, sticky, dark syrup made from partly refined sugar, molasses. I, I don't know what that was. You're in. You're in. But I had just, fun doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you just got cast in uh, Christmas Galoshes. It's a British movie. Yes. So it's, it's, there you go. It's, <laughs> <laughs> the Christmas Wellingtons. The Christmas <laughs> that's, Wellingtons. That's what, you, that's what you want. That's what you want. Oh, uh, I love it. I love it. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Lead us, lead us to the town hall, Mr. Yang. Let's do it. Let's take 
a town hall question. This is where we take questions from the listeners who are curious about the show. Where shall we do the town hall in the town of Pawnee today? Rob Lowe. Mm. I got a suggestion. Why don't we do it in the house of the enemy, the Pawnee Library? <laughs> our arch enemies, our arch enemies. We'll do it in the library. Hopefully no dirty librarians are there, but we'll be surrounded by books and we'll do the town hall there. Shh, keep your voice down. Shh, it's a library. <laughs> I like that. This, uh, now I feel like I'm on NPR. I'll, I'll read this like I'm on NPR. <laughs> Please do. This question comes to us from Jackie in Minneapolis. And the question No, 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 is, no, no, you already fucked it up. You have to go, this question comes to us from Jackie in Minneapolis? Like you have to up, <laughs> up, there has to be up speak at the end of everything. I just realized I haven't listened to NPR in a while. Anyway, <laughs> this is Ira Glass. Okay, uh, the question is, Favorite improvised moment that did not make it into the final cut. Mm. Favorite improvised moment that did not make it. Ooh, and I want to open this up to a producer, Greg, to opine. As yeah, well. I, I, I'm thinking of one too. It's pretty dirty, so I don't know if I'm gonna read it. Up. There's one. So there's one in a, a DVD. I don't know. Oh, if got, I know what this you, one. This, this is a Pratt one. It, it's it's pretty dirty though. <laughs> It's something like everyone loves. He's at a town hall, I believe, and he's he's in the audience, sitting next to April. I can see it in my head, and he says, oh, "What's everyone's like? What's your favorite comeback story?" He's like, "Oh, my favorite comeback story? It's got to be uh, it's got to be Kim Kardashian's comeback story. Like, didn't she get some on her back? That did not make it in the show. I know. I'm trying to think of what other like runs people went on. That oh well, no, it did go in, didn't it? Patton Oswalt's Famous. Oh, yeah. No, that didn't make it all the way in. That's actually pretty, like, we used a little bit of it. Um, so, yeah, Patton Oswalt's character talks, uh, you know, basically does a filibuster about how the Star Wars and Marvel Cinematic Universes should merge. And so if you go on the internet and search Patton Oswalt MCU uh, Star Wars, I think you'll be able to find it because he goes on for like 10 minutes about it. Ashiak has been destroyed by this very mysterious force. Now we know, oh, this was Thanos. Thanos is beginning to, uh, you know, uh, gather power in this new universe. So uh, while they take Chewie's head down uh, to, because we've seen that, you know, they can build new bodies. They're going to build Chewie, this really cool robot. I w I'm thinking spider body, you know, like a cool spider body with Chewie's head and, and ion cannons on it. But that will be in the heel come back. That'll be the, the post-credits tease of this film, so keep that in mind. So I don't want you guys bummed out, because Chewbacca's not dead. He will come back. He went on long enough that people were able to call from the set to the writer's room. You guys got to come down here and see what Patton is doing. And, and, and writers had the time to hear this and arrive at the studio, and Patton was still talking. By the way, in an interesting uh, presaging of corporate synergy, this was before they were both bought by Disney. So now it could actually happen. Because at the time, Star Wars was Lucasfilm and Marvel was Sony and all this other stuff. So, But then, of course, Disney bought both of them. So we could see that. And just another bit of presaging, the opening sequence of the Book of Boba Fett, and just a little bit of spoiler warning, it ends with uh, this shot eerily, eerily similar to the way Patton describes um, Boba Fett emerging from the sand pit. Coincidence? Inspiration? Maybe a hat tip to Patton and Parks? Let's find out. His his rant will come true. Uh, it's, it's a nine-minute long rant on, on YouTube. So I know we did a thing where Chris and Ann, this is in episodes to come when, I, when Chris shows up on the show, but where Chris and Ann were walking romantically and Chris, out of nowhere, takes up, off and parkours up the side of a tree. <laughs> Yeah, I did. Was that in the episode? But I don't I think, think it was in the episode. Really? I, I don't like, think it was in. I remember when parkour was written and it just made everyone laugh so much to picture it. I do remember that. So maybe just you and me have seen it, Rob. I don't know if you've, if you've seen it or you lived it. But um, it, yeah, I think you like run up a tree. I, think I, ru I literally run up a tree. It made me yeah. laugh. Uh, it was it was. And we did a great thing. Was it what they call a Texas switch in stuntman parlance, which is it's the kind of thing where. I, I run around a tree to go up the thing, but the stuntman is hiding behind the tree. So I run to the tree and the stuntman then just comes out from the tree. And it's called a Texas switch. We've switched them on camera and, and they ran up the tree. Um, there's a great Texas switch. My favorite Texas switch, if you ever want to see one, is I'm a connoisseur of horrible 1970s opening credits. Um, if you ever want to watch SWAT, 
it's great. There's an actor that comes through the window. He jumps through the window, it shatters, drops out of frame, and then comes up with his gun. And it's so clearly a stuntman coming through the window, dropping below, and then the actor just popping up. It's brilliant. So funny. I, I love a Texas switch, man. That's like that's great. It would be great if uh, the person who popped up was the fake baby from American Sniper with a gun. <laughs> that, that's the Texas switch. I love me that baby. You know I do. So my favorite improv that never made it into an episode is when Pratt and Aubrey are talking to Dr. Harris. It's in the episode where he gets all of his doctor appointments. I think it's campaign ad in season four. And he's with Dr. Harris talking about symptoms, and he says something like, you know, sometimes when I wipe, I'll wipe, and I'll wipe, and I'll wipe, hundred times, still poop, still poop. It's like I'm wiping a marker or something. And Aubrey starts cracking up from the moment Pratt pauses after sometimes when I poop, and he pauses just long enough, and she starts cracking up. She won't stop laughing the entire scene. It's definitely, definitely one of my favorite improvs. Um, and I love going back to it. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, listen, thanks, everybody. This was a good one. Another good episode. Um, and there are 120-some more to come, and you better be here for them. Uh, signing off. This is uh, Rob Lowe, soon-to-be Chris Traeger. When we finally get to my episodes, just chill. It's going to happen. All right. Thanks to producers Schulte and Greg. Goodbye, everybody. Parks and Recollection is produced by Greg Levine and me, Rob Schulte. Our coordinating producer is Lisa Berm. The podcast is executive produced by Alan Yang for Alan Yang Productions, Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Jeff Ross, Adam Sachs, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Gina Batista, Paula Davis, and Britt Kahn are our talent bookers. The theme song is by Mouse Rat, a.k.a. Mark Rivers, with additional tracks composed by John Danik. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Parks and Recollection. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mask, great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice, I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.